welcome back in another episode startups sparks and serendipity it's uh, max on this side again uh, and and mike as well but um, we have our first guest on the show which we are super grateful about um it's christian bush um super happy to have you here it's the first guest on the show it's about serendipity um he just published a book which has something to do with serendipity that we're going to talk about but um there's going to be lots more that we that we're going to cover and uh, christian it's a pleasure to have you on the show um welcome to the podcast thanks so much maybe to to start off um i mean we have a couple of exciting topics that we want to talk about but i think um let's start off with you as a person maybe you can give the listeners a little bit of background of who you are, what you have done in your life, um, how you have become who you are now um, to, to start it off uh, at this path. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, it's really kind of, it's been an interesting journey in terms of, um, I think I've, I've had experiences early on in life that made me realize how quickly life can be over in terms of, you know, near-death experience type car crash uh, uh, situations. And I think it, it instilled in me this kind of urgency of, hey, look, like next time something like this happens, I hope that it was worth it. Because at that moment, you know, and when I had that, that crash, for example, it would be like, well, you know, if I would have died now, it wouldn't have been really, you know, whether I didn't do a lot of meaningful stuff until then. Um, and so I think since then, and I've, I've been on this intense search for meaning and trying to figure out like what is it that I can do in life that kind of somehow you know sparks what I enjoy doing but also leaves some kind of meaningful impact out there and so what I realized is I mean first that kind of was all around kind of building communities and so one community that we um, that we kind of co-founded in Zurich actually um, was the the sandbox network which has been all about essentially bringing together young inspirational people in different fields um, and it was based on this premise to say, hey, look, usually when you're like really pushing the boundaries in a certain field, uh, you're pretty well connected in your own field. But mindset wise, you're much closer to people in other fields who are similarly crazily pushing the boundaries. And so it was about saying, hey, look, why don't we build like a home for those people who are pushing the boundaries? And so um, that's now kind of based on hub structure where around the world you have local kind of communities. And then, you know, the most interesting people in different fields are, are meeting. And it's really kind of this idea of like a community of, of, of meaningful friends that that is really about helping each other out and growing together and um, one of the things then you know during that period like I would be involved in a couple of other ventures and startups and everything else and and my, my kind of inner imposter came more and more out where it was like hey look do we actually understand we're all talking about this kind of impact and and xyz but like do we actually understand what we're really doing here are we just kind of <laughs> flying planes while we're like or building planes while we're flying them and so um kind of I got a bit more involved in like um you know we we kind of um um, um, we ran an innovation center at the London School of Economics, which was much more about saying, let's dive deeper into like the knowledge behind this and like what are the patterns behind how we scale social impact, how we scale financial impact, how we think about sustainability. And one of the things that happened in all these different areas that I got super excited about was that both in my practical experience as like community builder and entrepreneur and as a researcher then, like serendipity popped up everywhere. Like it was kind of the most purpose-driven or the most successful, the most joyful people. They would intuitively do these things where they would turn the unexpected into positive outcomes. And so people would just say something like, yeah, no, they're just a bit luckier than others. Or they just have that happen a bit more, more than others, even though they would be in exactly the same situations as other people. And so I, I kind of what I got really excited about was that question of what is the framework behind this? How can we understand what is a science-based framework for cultivating serendipity and how can we build that muscle for it? So what are exercises for this? What are inspirational kind of insights from around the world to do that? And so that is really um, the, the book that I've been focused on for the last kind of months. Um, I'm here now in New York um, where I'm running a global economy program at, at New York University. And 
Um, my key focus has really been on this book and say, let's bring all this kind of together that we, that we know about serendipity, like across different sciences, but also from our own experiences. And then let's put that all into, into, one, into one, one book. And it's been a beautiful like, excuse to uh, just kind of dive deep into something that to me has become a, a life philosophy and, and a daily practice. That's, that's actually a great, like there's so many great points where we could start, but I would like to start with another question about how you uh, understand your career. Would you describe yourself as a researcher primarily um, because you have this job at the university? Like, how would you describe yourself? Probably an eternal, eternal searcher, you know, someone who's always searching, who's always kind of mm -hmm. trying to um, see what, what could be a problem, how to solve it and connect dots between those different areas. And so I think dot connector probably would, would make it. And, and so I would, I would very much relate it to like entrepreneurial spirit in terms of, I think every quote unquote platform that I'm, I've been part of, being at communities, being at companies or being at academia, I've always tried to somehow use it as a vehicle to, you know, connect dots um, and, and to, to help make meaningful ideas happen. And so I think that's kind of, um, you know, if I would have to connect the dots at hindsight, I would probably say that is the, the red thread that brings it all together. Yeah, I mean, dot connector sounds way cooler than researcher. So let's, let's <laughs> stick with that. And uh, maybe let's also start with serendipity because it's currently your focus and uh, the initial reason why uh, we reached out to you because it's in the name of our podcast. So we, we think it's a very important concept. And in your book, you say that serendipity, serendipity is the unexpected good luck resulting from unplanned moments in which proactive decisions lead to positive outcomes. And that sounds fairly smart. But can you maybe elaborate a bit on what you mean by that and maybe give an example of situations so that our listeners can understand what you mean? Yeah, it's, it's a great question because I feel in a lot of times when we think about luck, we think about it as a passive thing, right? So we think about like, you know, I don't know if you're born into a good family or you inherited something or something. It's, it, but this is kind of the kind of that's the blind luck, right? Like we don't work for it. It just happens. There's not much we can do about it, uh, at least not that I, that I know of. Um, but then there's the kind of like the, the other kind of luck, which is like the, the active luck, the smart luck. And so serendipity is really about this kind of smart luck that's about saying you see something unexpected and then you do something with it. And so to give you maybe two examples, one in like our day-to-day -day life and the other one um, kind of in the business life, day-to-day um, -day life is really this situation, you know, let's say um, you're in a coffee shop and you accidentally spill, like if you have erratic hand movements like I have, you constantly spill coffee. And so let's say you spill this coffee over this person and like you look to the person and you sense there's some kind of connection, you know, that you sense there could be something there. But then, you know, think about the two scenarios. Scenario one is you just say, oh, I'm so sorry, here's a napkin and have a great day. And scenario number two is like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. You start talking with the person, you see some kind of overlaps and you end up as kind of becoming life partners or, you know. And so essentially um, there's, there's the kind of thing where a lot of times we miss that kind of serendipity in the sense of we, we have some kind, something unexpected happening like the coffee spilling, but we don't do anything with it. Versus in scenario two, what we're doing is we're trying to see, is there something we could do with that? To make it more concrete also in a business context, like, And, and same, by the way, you know, the way maybe you meet your co-founder or something like it, mm. like we might say it was just coincidence, but you know what? It wasn't just, you ran into each other at a conference, but you had to kind of make that conversation. You had to think about how to go with this. So it wasn't just about that one moment, but it was a whole kind of process. And um, in companies, like one of my favorites is actually, there's this um, Chinese company I've been working with um, 
uh, they do white goods and like, you know, kind of like kitchen stuff. And um, they got calls from farmers and the farmers would tell them, hey, look, um, we try to wash our potatoes in your washing machine. It's always breaking down. Like what a crappy machine. Um, and, and, you know, what would we usually do when we hear something unexpected like this? We would say, well, farmer, we have to educate you to not wash your potatoes. This is a cloth washing machine. Like you don't wash your potatoes in this. Right? They did the opposite. They said, you know what? This is unexpected, but at the same time, we know there's a lot of farmers out there in China who have the same, who probably have the same problem. So why don't we build in a dirt filter and make it a potato washing machine? And that's how the potato washing machine, quote unquote, coincidentally or serendipitously evolved. But again, it was based on people who actively did something with something unexpected. And that's the case, you know, if you look in history, uh, the history of innovation, of inventions, of what really shapes our lives. Like it's these kind of moments, right? From Viagra to like all these kind of things, they're all somehow serendipitous. But again, they were never passive. There was always someone who did something with it. Couple of, uh, I think, very beautiful stories. I think I, I, I love the idea behind it. Um, and, and I have a follow-up question to that because we, I think we mentioned framework earlier uh, and, and I wondered, I mean, being in the moment now where you spill the coffee and you, you, you of course, as, an, as a researcher that has been digging deeper into the topic, you see those two pathways where you could ignore the opportunity or you could actually face the opportunity in a positive way. How, how does a person now recognize the opportunity? Of course, there's a coffee spilling, but how do you recognize and, and build on top of it? Is there like a framework that you have built more subconsciously or consciously that people can use? Or um, is that more or less practice and, 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 and learning by doing more over time? Yeah, that's a great question. That's literally 300 pages in the whole. <laughs> but, um, but I, but I would say, <laughs> exactly. but what I would say is, is, is definitely, so I'm a big fan of the idea. Um, if we take, if we take um, kind of a first step, like what is a good filter for these kind of things, right? Or what is something like, what helps us to identify something? Um, that, you know, there's this old saying that luck favors the prepared, right? And like in the sense that like, if we're setting ourselves up for it, and I think to me that comes back to first a lot around this idea that we need this kind of open mind around it and almost like the belief that we can create our own luck. And to give you an example, there's an amazing experiment they did um, in the UK where they took one person who self-identifies as extremely lucky, right? So it's someone who says, I always have good hap things happen to me and da da da. Mm. And someone who self-identifies as extremely unlucky. They would say, oh, bad things always happen to me. Everything is bad, accidents always happen. And so what they, what they tell them is, go down the streets, go into the coffee shop, order a coffee and sit down. That's it, nothing more. What they don't tell them is that there's hidden cameras across the street and in the coffee shop, there's a five pound note in front of the coffee shop and there's only one seat within the coffee shop next to this extremely successful businessman who can make every dream happen. So now <laughs> the lucky person walks down the street, sees the five pound note, picks it up, goes inside the shop, orders the coffee, sits next to the businessman, has a great conversation, exchanges business cards and probably an opportunity comes up. Now the unlucky person, walks down the street, steps over the five pound note, goes inside the shop, orders the coffee, sits next to the businessman, ignores the businessman, that's it. Now at the end of the day, they ask the lucky person, so how was your day? And the lucky person says, amazing. I made two new friends, so the barista and the, the new businessman. Um, uh, I found money in the streets. And you know, we don't know if, a, if an opportunity came out of it, but it wouldn't be unexpected, right? The other person just says, well, nothing really happened. And you know, that kind of mindset wise is a huge thing that you might have seen in couples or in different kinds of co-founders or so, right? Where one person, you face exactly the same situation 
question, but essentially you have a completely different outcome. A, because you start believing that it is out there. And that is why I'm a big believer, for example, in like serendipity journals or like similar to how you would do a gratitude journal to like do a serendipity journal where you just detail a couple of incidences like this, like, oh, this was a moment like where I spilled a coffee and I didn't do anything versus, oh, this was a moment where I was in a virtual conference and someone brought up X, Y, Z and I connected it directly to my brother who's coincidentally working on a similar project. And so by getting into that, we intuitively learn, Max, to your point, we learn how to connect dots differently because we, we, we learn to think about the world not in terms of, I just listen to you and take everything you say for granted, for example, but I listen to you and I think about, oh, how does this relate to something else, even if I don't think it might relate to that, right? And that's where these unexpected like dot connecting um, things come, come a lot into it. So I think first step is definitely around this idea of like, us being aware of it and starting to see it when it happens, because that is then the first step to actually seeing it. And then we can connect the dots and, and do something with it. And I think, you know, a second thing that I've been a big fan of is, is I do a lot of work in especially resource constrained environments. So um, context of extreme poverty, like for example, in, in parts of Kenya or parts of, of South Africa and the Cape Flats. And there's this amazing organization, um, amazing company, uh, Reconstructed Living Labs. And so it's pharma, former drug addicts and, and others who, had a really rough life. Um, and whenever they kind of go into a local community to like, they have this low cost education methodology that they take to people and then train them in how to, you know, become a teacher or something. And, um, you know, they go into a local community and instead of asking, what do we need here? They always look at what is already there. So they would say, oh, there's an old garage. Fantastic. That could be a, a training center. There's a former drug dealer. Fantastic. That person will be extremely creative and will have amazing contacts locally on the ground. So if we turn this person to a teacher, that could be it. And so I think that kind of like reframing of like looking at the world, especially at the moment, right? In the COVID world, everyone is so obsessed with like budgets and not having a budget here and not having this here. But actually like once you reframe the world into, okay, do we really need this budget? Or like, can we look at things completely differently? And so in their case, for example, it's simple things like practices were in their toolbox. They would literally have, whenever someone makes a budget, they, are, they always have to go through three questions, which is, first question is, um, do you really need this item? So let's say you organize an event and like um, you say you need 100 chairs. And so they would say, do you really need the 100 chairs? If yes, does anyone here have chairs? Your neighbor, the person downstairs, mm -hmm. the person whatever, whatever. And if nobody has it, is there something else we can use? So for example, could people just sit on the floor? And then, you know, like a lot of times what this does is once you reframe a situation like this away from a particular budget item, it opens up that opportunity space where you could be like, oh my God, such a coincidence. My cousin has been working for an event agency and they probably have like 50 of these chairs. But again, you would never think about this if you're just kind of in your plan thinking that's mm -hmm. going forward. And so I think there's a lot of these kind of small things um, you know, where it's really about us kind of rethinking about a lot of the things we take for granted. And once we open our mind, like it starts happening all the time. And that's, you know, to me, that's one of the biggest joys of serendipity that once you get into it, like it's almost like a big addiction. And then the big, the big challenge becomes like for any entrepreneur as well to filter opportunities, right? To say what really relates to my North Star. Um, and so in my case, for example, I usually have friends who filter with me in terms of saying, oh, this makes sense. This doesn't make sense. In company, they have brain trusts who informally do that. But like, mm -hmm. it's kind of, um, yeah, a lot of different ways. But I think, so long story short, I think there's quite a few things we could talk about. But I think if, if we would have to nail it down to the absolute basics at the beginning, I think it's that open mind, the kind of ability to reframe a situation. Yeah, actually, uh, like a lot of the best opportunities in my life, and also the reason why I founded the company that I just founded, was also because of some random moments and me connecting the dots. I didn't have the the words you are using for it right now, but 
in hindsight. So maybe to to elaborate on that, uh, the reason why I flew to San Francisco last year to build a company with two of my best friends was that at a like late Twitter uh, search of mine, where I couldn't sleep, I was just on Twitter browsing Twitter, and then some random person I've never met tweeted something about an accelerator for immigrant founders in San Francisco, and we applied and got in. And like I would I would have never known that this one existed. But I just like actually scrolled down and then scrolled up again because I thought, hey, something was interesting here. And I think if I had known your framework, that would have been a bit easier to explain why it's so interesting. But the, since I've read your book, which was only a couple of days ago when I, when I actually finished it, so many things I've already been doing just kind of snapped into place. And now I have this like larger framework. So uh, that's very helpful. And for everyone who um, who is listening, who likes what, what we're talking about, the book is called The Serendipity Mindset, and we'll also link it in the show notes, uh, as always. So uh, take a look there. But one thing that I really wanted to focus on, because I, I, I feel that you mentioned it a lot in the book, is some kind of link between serendipity and joy. You, you seem to mention joy a lot. Can you, can you mention why you think that this is such a big part of, of this whole framework and mindset? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think especially in times like at the moment, right, where a lot of joy has been taken from us in terms of, I mean, here in New York, for example, right, where people are, I mean, extremely kind of depressed, right? And, and I mean, I just went, we talked about, right, I went through COVID, others went through COVID, people are dying here, like, it's kind of, it's getting better now, but it was a really rough time. And so I think in those times, um, I'm, I'm a big fan of going back to the Viktor Frankl. So, so you know how some people have their Bible next to their bed. I have my Viktor Frankl book, uh, Men's Search for Meaning. Yeah. And I've always been extremely inspired by this idea that once we start trying to find meaning in every situation, so once you, for example, let's say you, you can't sleep in the evening. Now, what you could do is you could beat yourself up about it. You could be like, oh, life is really bad. And like, then you close down or you say, okay, like at least uh, I'll scroll a little bit through this. And then like something like this happens, right? That you see this opportunity. And I've, every opportunity that I know in my life um, came from those kind of things where it was maybe a tough moment or like a rough patch or something. But in that moment, there was something that then made it meaningful when I look back. And so, yes, it was bad luck maybe in a moment or like a bad situation, but actually then it found a lot of this. So I think there's these two things of like, A, like psychologically, that, that like this belief that once you find meaning in crisis, it makes it much easier to be resilient. But then I think the link to joy really comes into when you think about the kind of, um, so when, when we did Sandbox, for example, at the beginning, like my most joyful moments where when I would be at dinners and people would be like, oh my God, such a coincidence, such a coincidence when they talk with each other, this spark, that kind of unexpected spark mm -hmm. that comes into someone's eyes when they just realize something or when they're like, oh my God, we could do this and da 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 da. And so I feel like serendipity to me um, has, once you integrate a lot of those moments, you just start seeing that every, every conversation, every moment that you are interacting with something with the world, right, with a book, with the Twitter, with, the, with anything else, could become joyful once you're somehow priming yourself towards it. And, and I think that kind of joy to me has, has especially in periods like this, become this, this main force. And to give an example, I've had a colleague once um, a couple of years ago, um, and he's this kind of very like, you know, like a grounded person. And he was like, look, Christian, 
I really like you and I think this is a really interesting topic, but I don't need more serendipity in my life. Like I'm really happy where I am and like I don't need anything else. And we were like, okay, let's make a deal. Like just do a couple of small behavioral kind of changes in your life. Like, so for example, when you order a coffee in the morning, instead of just asking the barista, how's your brother and how's your sister and how's your X, Y, Z, like ask them like what is on your mind at the moment in terms of like what do you find exciting or what are you working on because they always work on projects or something, right? And so it started like like happening that they would tell him about like these really cool projects going on and then there would be some kind of like random overlap with other things he was on. And so after a couple of weeks, like I asked him, so how's it going? He was like, Christian, I didn't know life can be so joyful <laughs> because like you, like every conversation now gets away from like this autopilot being bored type X, Y, Z, or, you know, so essentially it peppers up every potential interaction that we have. And, and to maybe give you a couple of examples of this, I'm a big fan, for example, of the, of the hook strategy where like um, there's an amazing entrepreneur in London, Oli Barrett. And so if you would ask him, let's say at a digital conference or something, this kind of dreaded, what do you do question? Like, instead of just saying, oh, I'm an entrepreneur doing X, Y, Z, he would be like, well, I'm an education entrepreneur, but I recently started exploring philosophy, but what I'm really excited about at the moment is playing the piano. And so what he gives you is three potential dots where you could be like, oh my God, such a coincidence. I just started hosting piano matinees. We should have you. Or such a coincidence, we just developed a philosophy platform. You should come in. And so... The, the thing here is that by the way we ask questions and how we respond, we also kind of create this, again, we can create this spark and then you can see the joy in the other person when they can connect the dots for you. And I think that is, to me as community builder at heart, this is the biggest joy to see how people, when you give people potential dots, we never really know what the outcome could be, but we do know that there will be some kind of cool outcome because we give them some kind of excuses and to link to whatever they are most excited about. Versus like, pres like pre presuming that we know what they are most excited about, which, which a lot of times we can't know. Yeah, actually that's a, that's a very cool thing you just said because one of my favorite things I learned at Y Combinator is from one of the partners called Dalton Caldwell. And he was always talking about increasing the surface area of luck. And you can do that by A, doing more things, just testing out more things, and then also, um, giving other people more potential avenues to help you. And that's exactly what you just said, right? And just in a bit of a different angle where you just say, not I'm an entrepreneur, but you give very specific things and you give, more, you give more than one thing, right? So yeah, very, very interesting angle. One thing that I wanted to focus on when, when I read the book that I stumbled upon was all, also that you seem to have a very... Uh, like clear proposition and you you kind of mentioned before that preparation and serendipity do not really interfere with each other it's actually very closely related right because you can only connect the dots if you have some kind of like base uh, to do that right can you bit, uh, maybe elaborate a bit on how to actually prime yourself to really connect the dots when it's when it's important I have yeah, the exact absolutely. same question, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> nice. <laughs> Great minds think alike, I guess, in your case. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, no, it's 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 interesting. And and um, let me give you an example, maybe of of Governor Cuomo here in New York, like the governor, right? Like he he essentially at the beginning he 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 missed a little bit the kind of initial COVID, but then he was extremely good at some point 
to build a lot of trust with people and to essentially like make New York now a quote unquote success case at the moment in the sense of really bringing down COVID and really kind of leading it through the most difficult period versus most other governors are failing at the moment. And why is that? Because most governors essentially what they did was what most of us intuitively try to do, which is taking control of something that we don't have control over. So they would say, we will exactly open up on this day and then we will open up this and we will open up this. So like we, we tried to put an exact plan out there, like as if we had an exact business plan for like every step and a strategy that is exactly X, Y, Z. Versus Cuomo said, look, I have a North Star. I have a principle. The North Star is, the sense of direction is, whenever there's public and economic health at XYZ degree, then we will open up. And here's an approximate timeline. We will endeavor to open up on the 15th. We will endeavor to do this. But I tell you already now that whenever unexpected information will come in, we will change that timeline. And that is part of our strategy. And by doing this, what he did was, what I'm a big fan of, he essentially doesn't see the unexpected as something that essentially is a threat to his plans now and that would like cost him his face and his job. But actually he sees it as something that he already built in because he knows that the unexpected will happen. And so it's the same case when you run companies, right? Like if you, so we just finished a study with like uh, 31 CEOs of like big companies like MasterCard, Procter & Gamble and others who are all somehow wanting to get fit for the future. We would sit down with them for one and a half hours and say, hey, look guys, and girls, fortunately, um, we sat down and said, hey, look, like, what is it about your leadership that really works? And one of the key themes that came out of it was that they are extremely good at giving like this kind of North Star direction. So a MasterCard CEO, for example, would say, well, we want to lift like 500 million people into the financial system um, that don't have access to the financial system at the moment. Mm -hmm. But we don't know exactly yet how exactly this will play out in every kind of location where we are at, because that needs to rely on whatever comes up during that journey in terms of learning, iteration, everything else. And so this kind of um, interplay between having a sense of direction, to Mike, your point in terms of that you know what you could connect the dot to, right? If I'm now working for MasterCard and I run into a person in South Africa and this person tells me, oh, hey, we used your credit card in this and this unexpected way, then you can be like, great. Like my CEO is open to now me telling him how we could use this card differently for this big idea that we want to do. Um, if the CEO just would say, we have it all figured out, you wouldn't allow that kind of unexpected to, to, to get into like the whole, um, the, the whole planning of the operation. So long story short, this is really about like saying, let's combine this sense of direction, a principle or an overarching North Star with this kind of humility or this kind of realization that the unexpected will happen and that it actually doesn't have to be a threat. And like um, the CEO of Cummins, which is a big company here in the US, he said it beautifully. He would say something like, cultivating serendipity then becomes an active approach to leading during uncertainty. Because essentially mm. we always, you know, as long as you have an illusion of control, you think that you can map everything out, but that's the worst thing you can do in a world that we live in, right? Because you always, you will have to hide some data. You will have to not react to, you know, because you want to be right, right? Versus like, if you do, if you lead like this, you create an also, you create a culture that allows for it, but then you're ready for that unexpectedness. And so I think that is where it gets really interesting to, to say in terms of when you think about corporate culture and so like, how do we build in this idea that we have to legitimize serendipity as like the living reality of people? Because hmm. if we are pretending, you know, 
like all of these 31 um, CEOs, for example, would be like, hey, look, towards my board, a lot of times I have to pretend I'm in complete control because they, they need the feeling for the shareholders that we are in complete control. So one of the like hopes with this book also, by the way, and Mike, you said that beautifully earlier, that like one thing around it is really giving people an active language for something that at, this, at the moment is seen as passive, right? At the moment, if, if the CEO runs into a person and gets an unexpected idea, they will still tell you as if they planned that, right? Because it sounds much more in control, but actually once we're saying, no, 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 it's even much more control that you were open to this new information and then turned it into something. And so this is really kind of an active approach then. And so that is one of the big hopes to get away from, I think we're lying a lot to each other because we, you know, we map out everything linearly, then life happens like, you know, like a squibble. Um, but then essentially we still tell it as if it was step by step. And so we can't really learn from each other because we only tell hero stories, right? And so it's really about um, being more honest about this as well. I actually shared... Sorry, go ahead, Max. No, I, I found it very interesting. And, and Mike, I, of course, feel free to add a sentence. But I think what I found interesting is that you kind of put the the metaphor of using, let's say, more a linear approach to to understanding serendipity, um, which which is kind of how humans work now. But the the the, the actual let's say benefit of using serendipity for joy also is kind of thinking more in in circles and thinking going back and forth, similar to what product management means, of course, in lots of startups where you go through iterative standpoints and iterative motions throughout the company journey instead of kind of planning everything out. And I wondered, I mean, you have been talking to 31 CEOs who partly potentially have, of course, that knowledge, how how, how startups work, how more or less the iterative um, development works. And I wondered, kind of looking at the CEOs and, and Mike kind of asked it a little bit earlier where you looked at them and of course they have some North Star metric and they don't know the exact pathway up there, but potentially I would love to be interested in or I'm interested in what's the underlying foundation of all of these kind of 31 CEOs that have a potential North Star metric that they want to go towards, um, but but they don't find the right pathway. Is there something that they had in common from a from a mindset perspective, from a routine perspective, where you could see similarities that they kind of meditate towards the North Star metric, or what what were kind of routines, habits that you understood from let's say the baseline of, of those kind of 31 people that that found the North Star metric? That's a great question because I feel they both it already started with how they defined the North Star. Like it's almost like the process already started with, you know, they, they all somehow in a way were practical philosophers. So they all constantly ask why, 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 why? Like they constantly question every assumption, right? Which is almost like the fast prototyping mindset, right? Where you say you, you don't take anything for granted in the world. And, 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 and they were really good, I think, at um, kind of also trying to understand what is our current capability and how does that relate to the real big problems out there at the moment? Because if you're a MasterCard, for example, and you just define yourself as a financial transaction company, that worked for the last decade, but it doesn't work in a world where stakeholders want you to be much more purpose-focused and, and so on. And so what they really learned was to say, okay, let's relate our capability, which is financial transactions, to um, financial inclusion and to like getting people out of poverty um, that don't have access to the financial system. And so it really started with this kind of real bigger purpose around the why in terms of really being good at saying, this is where we are at the moment, this is our legacy. And now we have to modernize our legacy towards a real big problem. And then we will, we will reframe our capability around this. And you see the same, by the way, at the moment, right? If you think about how breweries here in New York become hand sanitizer companies um, using their alcohol for hand sanitizers, designer companies become mask companies, right? Like essentially these companies are smart enough to to say, we assumed we were in XYZ industry, but that can change because it depends on if we have this capability, it might work in completely different areas and, and we are ready for this and we're doing this. And so I think 
A, they were really good at saying, let's link this to like these bigger problems, even if it means that we might not be the, the, the company we were before. And then really kind of breaking it down into like day-to-day -day practices of like, you know, so for example, um, into every process like hiring, promotion, um, and, and everything else, like building their values into this in a way, if one value, for example, would be around inclusion or diversity or something else, how does this really, how is this reflected in meetings? Like, do you, does every decision, for example, is that based on the five principles that we talked mm. about? Or um, is, do we open a meeting, for example, thanking people for like how they helped out someone else last week and like building in that bit of gratitude or building in that bit of like in some companies, for example, they would do things like asking meetings, like what surprised you last week or, you know, so building in something that allows you to, um, to in a way, um, not only preach to people, oh, we're all about like, uh, like being ready for the unexpected next for that, but actually building that into processes and, and say, you know, it's, it starts on the team level, right? It starts on the team level to have these conversations and to, um, to be open to these new ideas and other things. And so I think they've all been really good at, at providing this psychological safety of saying, mm -hmm. if you have like employees around the world, you need to give them a voice in some way or the other. And one way to do that is to make them care about what we're doing, which is kind of when you integrate values and purpose into every process and everything else. But then also it's about like actually getting these ideas in. And so I'm a big fan, for example, of how um, um, they, some of them would place bets. So like this idea of like having low probability options. Um, um, there's, there's a company, um, so, so a friend of mine, um, he was running Diamond Bank, which is like a bank in, in Nigeria. And um, he would build in, you know, they would build apps and they would always have like the five or six functionalities which they think customers want and they did a lot of testing around it. But they would also include like a couple of other low probability options where they would just say like, let them play around with it. Yeah. And usually mm -hmm. the low probability options would become the high, like the, the high performers. It's similar to this potato washing machine. You can't know this in advance, but like if you let people play with some of these things, but you make very clear, this is the core product. And by the way, here's a couple of features you can just play around. And that's the fascinating thing where then a lot of times comes in so I think you know it, it can also like in a way that mindset can also embed itself in how you design technology how do you design platforms and, and so on. I, I really like that the example is not the SAS app number 507 but the potato washing machine <laughs> that's, <laughs> so that's, that, that definitely helps to really keep it actively in your mind right because you usually don't talk about potato washing machines that much <laughs> at least in our circles so uh, I, I like the example and I would like to, to, to shift focus a little bit uh, to something that you mentioned earlier. And that's also something that I've thought about a lot uh, because of COVID and because of how much of a traumatic experience it is for business, but also more importantly for many individuals. And one thing you say in your book and you mentioned in your intro is that um, like near-death experiences can be very transformative. And then also you, you quote death is life's greatest motivator. And there's so many interesting people, Dan Ariely, who had a like major accident, who's a, a very famous researcher, James Clear, who's really like famous by now and had this like ho horrible accident. And then you yourself also, you, you took meaning out of it, but there's so many more people that have similar accidents that um, don't manage to transition. And I think it will be the same with COVID actually, right? Every one of us experiences it in some way, maybe in different intensities. But what do you think, especially individuals, maybe we can focus on businesses afterwards, can actually do to be resilient and to actually take something out of it and grow and not be defeated by it? I think that's the core question I want to get at. Mm. 
Mm -hmm. That's a great question also because, you know, having been here in New York and I, for example, a lot of my students, right, they had their internships planned out, they had their careers mapped out and like everything broke down, right? And there was like, like there's a whole vacuum now. And I think one of the things that, that I've been very inspired by in terms of the Viktor Frankl things we talked about earlier is really this idea that like a lot of times we cannot we cannot control the stimuli, right? We cannot control if we get cancer, we cannot control if COVID happens or something else. Um, but what we can control is our response to it. And, and, and now the question in these kind of moments is, do we let ourselves define by those moments or do we help reframe and redefine that? And, and, and what I've really seen is kind of, and that's what I really like about serendipity that again, I think we will look back in 10 years and this will be a reference point for us, right? And we will say, which were the leaders that were able to reframe this and to really kind of, you know, these kind of crisis moments bring out the real colors in leaders, right? You see like who's a real leader versus who's someone who kind of directly goes the easy way, cost cutting and just throws out people versus who are the people who come up with creative solutions. And so to give an example, um, there's, there's, um, I remember um, 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 there was uh, this, this hurricane a couple of years ago um, in, in, in Puerto Rico and like Best Buy, um, you know, they, uh, they, have, they have a couple of shops there and they face the decision now, right? The decision was, do we just close down the shops and that is for now and, and that's all right? Or do we close down the shops? We send private planes to pick people out of there. We work with the local community to do that. And they had investors telling them like, hey, look, like this will be too expensive. Like maybe you shouldn't do this and so and so. And they still did it because they felt this is like what we stand for and this is what we want to do. And by doing this, the interesting thing is that, you know, Hubert Jolie, the, the chairman, said it beautifully. Like, he literally kind of, um, his, his idea was that the unexpected defines who we are. Like, it brings out who we really are. It brings out, like, it brings out our deepest fears or it brings out our deepest strength. And so, in a way, um, and I'll get into it in a second, right? I, of course, it brings in all of us deep fears and, like, it's, it, like, we have to, like, a lot of us have to build that muscle, right? But, like, what I found interesting in the, in the case of, of, of Best Buy is that they, they took the hit financially, right, short term, but then long-term productivity increased, customer loyalty increased because people were like, in the moment when it really mattered, you were there, like you were here. Mm -hmm. And so I, 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 as a kind of, you know, I've seen this in my own work as, as professor and as company builder, that is in those moments, like where if you're really there and if you're really kind of even like, um, you know, if you're in a company where you know, a lot of restaurants, for example, have to close down and of course, right, and they don't have a choice, like you don't have the liquidity to, to stay. But then there's always ways where you can say, hey, look, like I will still introduce you to my friend who also has a restaurant. Maybe you can work there. Or if I'm a bigger company, I can tweet about you on my Twitter account so that you find the next job. And I think it's these small things, right? They seem small. But if we at this point as leaders, like show that there's still, even if we have to close something down, we can still kind of do something that helps others out. And I guarantee you in 10 years, like at least 10 people will say, you know what, because of your introduction to this person, I found this new job and I, 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 I fell in love with the person who worked with me there and X, Y, Z. Like people will trace back a lot of experiences to that moment. And so long story short, I think as leaders, like I know how, how easy it is to, to, to feel, oh shoot, like the world is going down. I've had this. Sandbox, for example, we came out of the financial crisis. Like our, all our sponsors were gone. Um, like everything else like was, was really going down the drain. For us, in the moment, it felt like the worst luck ever, right? We were like, oh, man, this is all going down. But actually, it reforced us. It forced us to rethink our model. Like, we were first, you know, Sandbox is a community. We were first thinking about, let's make this big conference with, like, all these great sponsors in the world and <laughs> fly everyone in. 
and then you know the financial crisis happened all sponsors jumped ship and we were like shoot like like we might have to close down but what we did was essentially say why don't we try to make it more organic why don't we try to like make it more via hubs now first like grow it and then once it's a better climate then we bring everyone together. And from a community perspective, that was much healthier in the end because actually people knew each other already then in the local hubs and would meet at a big conference, not as kind of new people, but they would know each other already. So I think again, like in the moment, it, it seemed like really bad luck, but in the long run, actually, it was probably one of the best things that could happen uh, to, to us as a, as from a community perspective. And so long story short, I've always been a big fan of Adam Grant's work around resilience and mm-hmm. and, and like the idea of, um, like he works a lot on this kind of, he wrote this book with, with Sheryl Sandberg, who uh, the Facebook CEO, who, who mm-hmm. lost her husband, and and that book is a lot around that question of how do you take like perspective and how do you think about things like last time when I was in a tough situation, how did I handle it, and if I handle it well, great, I can probably do it again. If I didn't handle it well, what else have I learned since then, or can I learn since then to really handle it differently now? And because one one of the things I've seen for with myself is when you're in the moment, it can be very inundating, right? But once you almost take yourself out of your body and say, what would I advise a friend at this point? What would I, you know, then we're like, geez, I mean, I would just tell a friend now, like, hey, like, knife uh, the uh, backing zusammen and, and, and run, right? Like, uh, like, really, like uh, and, and so, um, and, and, and so it's really, um, I, I feel a lot about this kind of perspective taking and this idea that, again, like, the beauty of something like serendipity and success, obviously, is that it usually is something that takes time. So it doesn't like, and, and a lot of times it comes out of these kind of situations, the hard situations, the crisis. Um, and, and so, again, I think the first step I would recommend is reading Viktor Frankl's Search for Meaning. He found meaning, he was in a concentration camp, and he still found this kind of moment of, okay, hey, I can still talk with a fellow prisoner, and by talking with them, it makes them feel better, which makes me feel better. And so he finds in very small moments, he found so much meaning. And I think if we can start at this, you know, in terms of whatever our company is, if we can see these small moments where we can do it, and then kind of like build around this and, and frame it, um, I think, you know, there's, we will look back in 10 years and, and say, wow, it might have been a great impetus and it might have, you know, given us reflection time and, and so on. So I think a lot of good things will come out of this. But again, I'm saying this also from, I mentioned that earlier when we had our pre-call, right? That like, um, there's people here who have been dying around it. There's, um, I had it a, a very rough time. So I think we can't at all like um, belittle that situation, right? It's like one of the heaviest situations we've had for generations. And at the same time, I think it could be to your point earlier, be an extremely interesting, it's almost like a collective near-death experience where because we're all having it, it kind of forces us all to really dig deeper into what is really important to us, what do we really want to do. And so I think in itself that could have, like from a movement perspective, be really interesting. Super, super interesting uh, talking points. Um, thanks for sharing that. I What I found really interesting in the story you mentioned is that Mike and I talked about it in previous episodes where we talked about lots of startups actually arising in financial crisis situations. And of course, there are there are existing companies that that kind of use the silence of the moment to rethink their future strategy, to rethink who do we actually need from an employee perspective, how do we prepare for potential future risks or threats that could potentially harm the company. So the silence where customers don't react, where nothing is kind of moving forward in the financial situation helps people to reflect and take a step back and kind of get a more holistic bird's eye view on the current situation. And that's also how lots of startups evolved, right? Looking, using the silence to potentially build further business uh, ideas and 
and actually build on top of them. So I found the analogy quite interesting of financial crisis are bad. Of course, there are lots of companies that are harmed by it, but you could also use it as an opportunity to reflect and take a step back and see it as a growth opportunity for, for the future, whether it's in a different company, whether you want to build something new or whether you kind of can, can, can rebuild the structure of your own organization. Yeah. One nice Absolutely. thing is we, we always do a book recommendation, but you, you just did it. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm a big fan of, of a man's search for meaning as well. And then obviously we have two book, book, uh, book recommendations today. The other one is your book. Uh, I repeated the serendipity mindset. Uh, we link both in the show notes with a, a very short uh, explanation as well. And maybe uh, one other thing that we tend to do, and uh, probably a good point in time to do it now, is we try to recommend a tool or something else that has helped us in the last couple of months. That, that can be everything. It can be a software tool. It can be something physical. Do you have anything that, that comes to your mind? I definitely recommend a serendipity journal. I, you know, like a kind of really sitting down and because I think especially in moments like at the moment where we focus so much on things that, that are harsh and that are, you know, taking joy from us and taking things from us. I think like being there just consciously when you wake up in the morning, think about the, the couple of things that, that you could do today to increase your kind of serendipity coefficient or so, um, but also then reflecting on what, what were the conversations today, maybe where you miss serendipity all the time because you didn't connect any dots and things like that. And I think getting into that mindset again, I think I found in my own kind of being here, you know, I come from Germany um, as, as you know, and, uh, as maybe some of our viewers and, and, and listeners and, and, you know, I grew up with a planning mindset, right? I grew up with a mindset of, I need to know what happens tomorrow and I need to know what's going on. And, you know, to me, ambiguity sucks, right? I'm like, hey, no, I don't want this. But so I think what the serendipity kind of like, once you get into that kind of um, uh, mindset is what it does with you is it, 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 it reframes that ambiguity away from something that, that feels like in your belly is uh, this deep discomfort to like, oh, there could be something in there. And, and so I think that that makes me look forward even like to tough conversations because I know there could always be something in there that could still come out of it. And so I think it's, um, yeah, like it's, or, you know, a, 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 a kind of um, a close, um, how do you call it, relative to it is, is like a gratitude, gratitude journal or something, right? Just something that forces us into like a, a kind of like, like thinking about things in a way that we, that we, that we don't get battled battled down by, by the current situation. Cool. Um, very interesting. I think Mike and, and I both kind of have some sort of gratitude journal, journal that we do at the end of the day or at the beginning. So we see some, some similarities. Uh, one, one other question that um, Mike and I also um, covered in, in previous episodes that we would also cover with, with future guests and guests like you is, um, how do you kind of structure your day? I know we, you are a researcher and I know, of course, you need some thinking time, which is also an interesting topic. And especially looking at that perspective that you need to focus on maybe more um, the research perspective, but you're also a company builder where you, of course, have some, um, some parts on the execution side that you need on a daily basis. So how do you kind of, how do you kind of structure your day? How do you, or, how do you organize yourself um, as much as, as serendipity allows it? Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, it's a great question because I feel one of my biggest shifts in well-being came from rethinking exactly this like from really trying to understand when do i have peak energy so when am i when am i most creative when am i most kind of um conceptually good in terms of like you know in the startup context when i when i would write my business plan or my kind of xyz like whatever plan 
um, or now like a paper or a book or something. And when are the moments when kind of like I'm, I'm, you know, like a little bit like lower energy where I could then like maybe have that kind of conversation that I have to have, but I don't have to, you know what I mean? Like I don't prioritize it that mm. much. And so um, I, I, I always did the mistake when we were still, um, when I was still like completely in the entrepreneurial um, world, I made the mistake of mixing that up, like of mixing kind of the conceptual time with the kind of like meeting time. And so, and then I came across Paul Graham's kind of maker versus manager schedule and it completely changed how I approached it because I would make the mistake where I would be like, um, I would work for like half an hour on like, um, like let's say a marketing plan or something and I would be so immersed in it, right? And I would be like, oh yeah, great, like it all fits together. And then I would have a quote unquote quick coffee with someone or a quick Skype call. And so I would have the quick <laughs> Skype call, but that Skype call wouldn't just be the 10 minutes of the Skype call. It would completely be half an hour again of me trying to get back into the other thing. And so it cost me so much. And so it would always make me really nervous of like, ah, now I wasted like essentially like a lot of time doing this. And so the biggest shift I've had in my life is to say, okay, I know that my high energy periods are in the, mo in the morning. And I know that at the moment, my priority is creating, um, you know, creating content. And so I would block my mornings, like literally with myself, um, like for a couple of hours where this is the productive maker time, like the conceptual time. And then afternoons are meetings and like Skype calls. And then the five minute Skype call is just a five minute Skype call because it doesn't take me out of anything. And so I think like, um, I, I can highly recommend this kind of, you know, adding to the reading list, the kind of Paul Graham maker versus manager schedule It's a short blog post, but it really changed like how I think about these things. And um, it, I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs do, do similar, you know, just in terms of protecting the time that is really needed to for the step change, right? Versus like we all get easily into the day to day fight or flight, but like like having this reflection time and protecting that um, super, super important. Yeah, we we are big PG fans here, so <laughs> definitely definitely a good shout out. <laughs> and we we could be talking for probably another hour and like talk for uh, about many many other topics, but I think we got a a very good overview in in terms of how you think about serendipity, what what people can actually do to basically uh, help use it in their own life. Do you have any like closing thoughts that you you would like to mention? Probably like closing the circle. That like to me. Serendipity is all about potentiality. It's about who we could be, um, you know, because we, we I think, and, and that is the opportunity of this moment that like, I think we take like a certain idea of who we think we are and then we build our business around it or something. But I think a moment like this that is so disruptive is an opportunity also to see who else we could be or what else we could do um, what else could be a path that could make sense? And and I think, you know, this idea of like when one door closes, like potentially five doors open over time, right? And so I think I'm just a big, big, big fan of this. And um, this is really coming, you know, full circle with Viktor Frankl. Like he had this amazing idea of like the, um, the flight instructor of like, so he took flying lessons and the flight instructor told him like, well, Victor, if you want to fly like, you know, so essentially like a straight line, you have to start a bit like higher because the wind will pull you down. And so his point was like, if you start as a realist, you end up as a depressionist. But if you start as an optimist, you end up as the real realist. And I really, I've seen this so often, right? It's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy, like, because everything changes, right? When you have a bit more of this optimism, like the, the kind of, you attract different types of people, you attract different types of projects. And like, I think it really comes back to this lucky, unlucky um, experiment we talked about at the beginning, that like, it's so much about the kind of mindset we give ourselves into it. And so um, I feel like this kind of potentiality of this moment 
it's incredible. Like there's so many potential things that can come out of this moment. Um, and I think, again, even if it doesn't feel like at this point, I think in 10 years we'll look back and say, wow, like there's a lot of things that came out of this that are just kind of really disruptive versus like, you know, the kind of things we, we always say, yeah, like XYZ was really disruptive. Yeah, was it really? But like now it's really, people have to be really creative, right? And really good and, and forces everyone to be really introspective. And um, so I think it's, it's, it's a great growth opportunity for everyone personally, not only as a, as a business. Victor, Victor also, like Victor Frankel also said, uh, I actually haven't connected the dots here to like reading the book a couple of years ago and now the current situation. But I think one thing he said is when we are no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves or something like mm -hmm. it. And it's, it's a very good way of looking at the current uh, situation. And then uh, before we fully close it off and, and Max says his parting words, we always have a quote. And this time I kind of cheated and just used one you used as the introduction to your book. And I'll just read it. And it's from uh, President Obama. And he said, I'm always surprised when I see people who have been successful and they're absolutely convinced that it's all because they were so smart. And I'm always saying, well, I worked hard and I've got some talent, but there are a lot of hardworking, talented people out there. There was this element of chance to it, of serendipity. And you want to see if you can maybe figure out how to sprinkle that stardust on other people. And I think that summarizes a lot of your way of approaching like your, your own life and then also how you think uh, about the specific concept. So I thought that was a, a nice way to, to close it off. Thanks, Christian, uh, for, for the time, for the interview. Great session. Thank you so much for the great questions and, and the great energy. It was a real pleasure talking with you and yeah, delighted to be here. Thank you. Thanks. Appreciate it.